It's November 23rd, 2020. This is Rook. He is a whiz in the sciences who has authored numerous books and taught in Iran and Canada for over 30 years. Dr. Javad Mashreqi recently became the first Iranian to ever be president of the Canadian Mathematics Society. I'll ask him why he thinks mathematics are beautiful and why Iranians should slow down and be patient in their learning curve. He joins us from Quebec City and then to Stockholm, Sweden, where ballet dancer, choreographer and visual artist Nima Kion has made it his mission to rebuild the Iranian National Ballet Company in exile. Plus, Mona from Melbourne chimes in with the Persian proverb of the week. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 64 of Rook. Hope you're in good spirits. Hope you're in decent spirits, at least, managing the lockdown one way or another, wherever you are, somewhere on this globe, in the universe. Omidvar hastam ki karantini tun bekam bashe. Huh, Shaya? Yes. You with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karantini always sounds like guarantee to me. Why I don't quite know why the far the Persian of quarantine isn't just quarantine or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's quarantine. Actually, it has a at the uh-huh, end. Quarantine. Oh, yeah. quarantine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like uh, every other word that Persians add an a at the beginning, the beginning. of the school. Escarbro. Uh-huh. Starbucks. <laughs> quarantine a. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like uh, quarantine or quarantine. <laughs> no, no. For yeah. example, for example, quarantinatun yeah. become uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know what you just <laughs> said, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, something about David Beckham and uh, guaranteeing. Uh, hope. Uh, we are on our ongoing. I do understand what you just said. Just for those people out there who are like, he doesn't understand anything. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia ladies and gentlemen, of Iranian diaspora identity. We are coming to you on various platforms. So wherever you're listening to us on, there's some other ones if you want. There's Spotify, iTunes, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Telegram. Now, in about an hour from now, I'm guessing, we'll see how long we go with uh, Dr. Javad Mashteri, but uh, Nima Kion is going to join us. Nima Kion from Sweden, from Stockholm. And he's got quite a story. He he left uh, Iran as a, in his late teens, uh, post-revolution. His goal was to become a ballet dancer. He did. He became a ballet dancer of note in Europe for many years. And then had a yearning to restart the Iranian National Ballet which had been shuttered by the revolution uh, uh, in Iran. And he did. He's restarted the Iranian National Ballet, but of course he couldn't do it in Iran. So he's doing it in Sweden, uh, which of course is 
a battle, but he's uh, continuing with that uh, goal. I don't know what he's doing right now during the lockdown, but um, it, with in terms of the ballet. But uh, Nima Kion, with that story and his personal story and his passion for ballet and how that intersects with Iranian identity, mm. will join us in about an hour. Mona from Melbourne, our mm. uh, Persian priestess of Proverbs, our uh, women of words, will join us uh, as well on this show. She's, she'll have some new saying or word or proverb that um, I will learn and you guys will roll your eyes and go, we knew that. You know what I did for a lot of the weekend? Mm. Yeah. I, I finished Queen's Gambit on Netflix. I watched it. Have, did you watch yes, it? Yes, yes. Did you yes. see the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> I, good? I so don't want to spoil it for people. I, you liked it. I loved it. Oh, I loved it. You know, it's a lot of people are loving it. I guess it's it's a, one of the number one series on Netflix right now. But um, but I was thinking about uh, there's got to be. I mean, I remember. So I'm a chess player. Or do you play chess? Uh, I was going to ask. Do you like chess? I love chess. Oh, well, I'll tell you. I loved chess, and then I started playing computer chess. And I guess oh. the setting I, I had the computer on was like too high, you know, oh. on the app. So it kept kept beating me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, forget this game. I can't do this anymore. I'm yeah. I'm I'm a loser. But um, no, no. But I'm a, I'm a chess fan for sure. Yeah. But uh, but you don't even have to be a chess fan to love this series. No. I mean, it's just so. But I was thinking. I mean, Shatranj, right? Shatranj. As Kojomiyot Shatranj. Where do we get Shatranj from? Uh, it's. I think it's uh, came from India. India. Uh, yeah. Oh, I thought it would be a uh, Greek the, thing. I, I think generally the game came from India, but I think the word Shatranj. Wait, you think chess came from India? I think. Interesting. So. I thought it was a Greece. Uh, but the Russians. The Russians. <laughs> I don't know. Holy anyway, we don't anyway, we know nothing. Do you know anything about this series, Reza? No. All right, no. Captain Reza. I'm telling you. I've seen, I've seen the trailer, but I it's, seen it's so it's so good. A, a young woman who's a chess prodigy yeah. kind of doesn't fit mm -hmm. in 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 life, but finds her her identity and herself in chess and and uh, set in the 1960s. Anyway, I I loved it, but I was thinking there's probably a very strong. I used to play chess with my dad, my dear late father, uh, when I was a kid, you know. And then I started beating him, and he stopped. See, Persians have trouble being <laughs> losers. As soon as I started beating him, he was like, "I do not like this game." You know, you know, he was uh, like, uh, "Now I understand well, uh, why Persians like Trump." We identify with them. He doesn't, yeah, just ju only winning, too. only winning. Can't concede <laughs> any losses. So uh, it's like me with the computer. I couldn't. But um, but I guess we, like in Iran, mm -hmm. did you did a lot of people play chess when you were there? In some parks in Tehran, for example, uh, for our listener in Tehran, they all know Park Andishe. Mm. And when you go there, always you see bunch of people gathering around some tables and watching some people that playing chess. Yeah, I mean that happens around the world. It's such it's one of those games that you know it really translates around yeah. the world. It's yes. it's it's something you can play anywhere. Um, did, is Parka Andy Sheer uh -huh. named after Andy, noted uh, <laughs> Persian pop uh, <laughs> sensation? <laughs> He no, you know Parke Andy She. Parke Andy She. Parke Andy She. So, but you know the meaning of Andy She. 
You don't know? Andy Shea. Mm. Oh, the word Andy Shea. You're catching me now. I'm mm. going to look like a... I need Mona from Melbourne. <laughs> Thank God. See, this is the problem when Keon isn't here. I know at least more than her, <laughs> yeah. but you know, now that I'm just like alone. So no, what is Andy Shea? Why don't I... Andy Shea... Uh, means parquet? thought. Huh? thought. Thinking, thought. Oh. Andy Shea means thought. Pondering. Ponder oh. Andy Shea. Yeah. I'm having an Andy Shea. It's very, they, they, I don't think they say it that way. It's so it's the, par- it's the park of thought in yeah. Tehran? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, yes, that's nice. Yes. That's a nice name for a park. Con- contemplation, maybe, huh? Contemplation. Contemplation. The park of contemplation. Like Andy Shea. Yeah, Andy And do people go there and contemplate? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess their chest moves. But <laughs> Seldom. Uh, hello to you, those of you listening to us in, in Iran. I, I get a I get a little buzz when uh, we get um, people, you know, writing to us and commenting mm-hmm. who are listening in Iran. It's really nice to know that they're they're listening yeah. from there. Maybe they're in Parque and Yishe right now, Maybe. contemplating things yeah. as they play Shatranj and listen to Rook. Um, by the way. A big breakthrough on our website. Uh, you know, our website is is it's actually pretty super now. Rookmedia.com. We have a search button. Mm-hmm. Did you guys know that? No. Ponce, the artist, just told me this. She just said this up. So you you can search. I mean, self-explanatory, but you can search whatever you want now on our website. You press the search button and you put in a word or a name or whatever, and it comes up. Isn't yeah. that pretty cool? Yeah, she just demonstrated for me too. Oh, she did? Yeah. Yeah, we have like cool. a, it's like an archive we have. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. One step at a time, young Jedis. One step at a time. Uh, you can help us out there if you like what we do on Rook. If you're sitting in Parka Andisha, <laughs> thinking, actually, if you're sitting in Parka Andisha, you're probably not going to support us <laughs> from there. It's going to be difficult wiring the money or, you know, uh, yeah. signing off the credit card. But if you're anywhere else and you, uh, uh, and you think you can support us if you like what we're doing. We have a patrons page on our website, uh, and it just says support us. And you go there, and we really want to thank the folks who are. Uh, we've got an incremental growth there of folks who are signing up on our patrons page and keeping us alive. Um, and speaking of hearing from people, we heard a lot from a lot of folks who were inspired by the Sonita Alizadeh interview, mm-hmm. and we'll get to those uh, letters on Thursday. Shai, you want to say something? Do you know the slang of chess? I mean, shatranj. When you, shatranj. I mean, when you watch the Queen's Gambit, yes. you know the, for example. Oh, in English? In English. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew. Well, no. I mean, when they were saying, saying uh, this is a so-and-so's move that he did in the 1950s in Hungary or something like that, I didn't know some of that stuff. But I knew what a Queen's Gambit was, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's a, I mean, I knew, you know, these the basic... Yeah. Uh, like a half decent chess player yeah. kind of stuff. Are you? Do you play? I used to play. Yeah. And what wait, what, what wait. happened? Did the computer start <laughs> beating you? Uh, and you? No. Uh, his I cousin. Think, no. His cousin beat no. Him. My my passion uh, reduced in the time. And, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Queen Gambit. Actually, we call it Napoleoni. Oh. Oh really? Yeah. I yeah. thought that was a pastry. Yeah, it's also a pastry. Yeah, it's yeah. one of uh, those Mona from Melbourne will explain. There's lots of different <laughs> meanings to Napoloni. <laughs> uh, oh, did you hear that? Uh, based on the Queen's Gambit, the sales of chessboards around the world. Oh. This is the power of Netflix, right? Wow. This is the power of, and, and this is, I mean, Reza, you're a movie maker, yeah. but uh, 
the power of Netflix now is is so much more. It's so much bigger, of course, than just releasing a film used to be into theaters or or a TV series. Like because it's global and it's omnipotent in terms mm-hmm. of the way that it enters all of our lives. So apparently, there's this massive just in the last three or four weeks, this massive upswing of orders for chess boards. Like young people getting really into chess. Yeah, wow. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh. Any more questions, Shia? Or can we get to the doctor? Yes, well, one more question. <laughs> well, what's the, what, what else? Yeah. Do you know Hokim? Hokim? Hokim. I know Tahdeh. No, Hokim is a... It's a game, right? It's a card game. Card game. Yeah. No. Oh. I've heard the name, but I don't know it. That's one of the things that maybe people who raised in diaspora outside of Iran don't know maybe it. don't know. But Hokim. Hokim. I, I think it's the do most you, do popular... Do you play uh, Hokim in the Park of Andy? <laughs> <laughs> If you want Hokme uh, no. arrest to be issued for, yeah, you, yes. You cannot play card in Iran. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's Wait a minute, what? Really? Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's illegal. You can't play because co- it's gambling. Yeah. Oh. But you can't can even you, own it like, if they catch you with cards. Can you play cards inside the home? I don't think so. It's like you drinking. Can, yes, you can play cards inside okay. the home. Not legally, I mean. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Inside your home, legally, you like can it's do like a, equivalent a, of taking off the rusari. Yes, <laughs> yes, and then you yeah. can play cards, yeah. but uh, but just not in public. This yeah. is so I. I'll never get used to this yeah. nonsense, you guys. I'm yeah. sorry. That's it, what, it, can't play cards. I mean, yeah. you know, but you can yeah. do all kinds. To be perfectly of honest, I don't really think people in Iran have gotten used to it after right. 50 years. That's why. Right. Right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, that's been very informational. And uh, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> let's get to our first guest. <laughs> You know, it's no secret that Iranians take pride in being some of the best engineers and scientists setting the standard around the world. But it's certainly heartening when we can claim someone in the diaspora who has ascended to official recognition of such. And my first guest today is that person. Dr. Javad Mashriqi is the first Iranian to lead the Canadian Mathematics Society. He is a professor of mathematics at Laval University, Quebec, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mathematical Bulletin, and recently, in June, he was elected the president of the Canadian Mathematical Society. Javad grew up in Kashan, Iran. He went to college at the University of Tehran, where he studied electronics and then got a master's in mathematics. He moved to Canada in 1996 and holds a PhD from McGill University. He's a member at large of the Publication Committee of AMS and a member of the Mathematical Council of the Americas. Javad has been recognized as the star professor for excellence in teaching at Laval University in seven academic years and has received numerous awards including for his exceptional work at the Canadian Journal of Mathematics, a CNRS Fellow, France, 2014, and a CMS Fellow, Lifetime, 2019, to name a few distinctions. He's the author of 11 books, and he has published more than 100 papers on a wide variety of subjects, such as operator theory, function theory, complex analysis, matrix theory, functional analysis, potential theory, optimization, mathematical biology, electrical engineering, and metallurgy. His 12th book, Operator Theory by Example, is going to be published soon. But first, Professor Javod Mashriqi joins me from Quebec City, Quebec today. Hello, sir. Bonjour. Uh, bonjour, Jian. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be with you today. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. We're proud of you. First of all, I know you're you're a superstar mathematician, but but what happened to your football career? I'm very disappointed you abandoned it. <laughs> well, it's a bit exaggeration, but you said I'm, I'm, I'm very humble to, to, to hear that. Well, soccer, yes. I was playing in a soccer team, which still exists in my hometown, Kashan, and I was playing forward. And uh, presumably a good player, but we got the, not the gold cup, but the, the second one. The, the amazing part is that even though I was the forward, I never scored. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you profoundly disappointed your your family that you left football and went into mathematics. They they weren't happy about that. I mean, you know, the parents want uh, engineers and medical doctors. So I, I first refused to go to the medical school. That was the first disappointment. And then when I was in the middle of my studies at, at Tehran University for electronics, uh, at the middle, I, I wanted to switch and go to the uh, faculty of science and continue as a mathematician. Well, they didn't want. So I stayed there for about four years, finished my, my engineering school, and then afterwards I went there. Listen, I was being sarcastic. I think any Persian parent would be proud to have a math whiz as their uh, star kid. But um, l let me try and um, uh, deconstruct this one at a time for those who, like me, are not very familiar with the math world. Uh, first of all, it's such a distinction, and it's you know we we heard the news. Certainly, those of us in Canada that this Iranian guy uh, that we've heard of has become the president of the Canadian Mathematical Society this year. Uh, it certainly sounds like an honor. What what does it mean? What do you do? Well, the Canadian Mathematical Society is kind of old, seventy five years old, and uh, it, it it is. It was established many years ago here, indeed, in, in the province of Quebec, and then uh, promoted to whole Canada uh, with 1,200 members. And to to go up in the hierarchy of administration, you you need to be a dedicated member of the society. You need to work hard to in different committees, and then in the board, and then in the executive committee, which I mean I did little by little, I mean step by step. And the last step is to sit on the chair of the president. Does every country have a mathematical society? Not every country, but many countries they do have. So you go to some kind of global meeting where you represent Canada? Of course, of course. For example, you mentioned AMS. It's an acronym for American Math Society, in which I'm a lifetime member. Uh, even though I'm not American, but you can be a, a member of other societies. But usually when we say Canadian Mathematical Society, most, I mean, the majority of people are Canadian. IMS, American Math Society, is an exception. There are many others who are member too. Okay, so I want to ask you some questions that I am sure will sound naive or um, or silly to to some folks listening who know a lot more about this than I do. But I've learned that there's no shame in asking about things if you don't know what you. It's good to know what you don't know. So so let me start here. In the context of the 21st century, where we're not using the abacus or even the late 20th century calculator, we're surrounded by gadgets and computers. What is is a mathematician. I mean, many people might assume you're some sort of human calculator. How would you describe what a mathematician is? Well, I believe this question is rooted in the fact that many people uh, believe that mathematics is arithmetic, just playing with numbers. That is not true. 
mathematics is a huge science and if you uh, look at the, uh, the classification of AMS there is a booklet it's a book I emphasize it's not just a few pages it's a book and the title is MSC math subject classification and the whole book is just the classification of different topics different subjects of mathematics it's a huge 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 science and uh, you mentioned again some say math biology statistics optimization all different parts of mathematics they do different things in every aspect of life it exists it's not just adding subtracting multiplying and dividing they mean this is arithmetic it's a part of mathematics but it's not the whole of mathematics i do uh, analysis which is a tiny branch of mathematics but still to to show how tiny it is as an analyst i participate in talks and believe me, I understand nothing, even though it's an analysis. It's hmm. so huge, it's so huge, so vast, that uh, when you have to just be a specialist in a small branch of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you some more questions about math and even the intersection of math and philosophy. But let let's hear a little bit about your story. You grew up in Iran. I said you're from Kashan. W- were you the kind of kid who was into math? I mean, I know you didn't study that at first, but were you basically what we would call a nerd as a kid? <laughs> well, maybe I liked math. Yeah, I I, I did. Uh, I remember at the time when I was a high school student. Uh, there was no uh, other class except that what we had inside the high school. I mean, outside the, 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 the our, our high school, there was no nothing, not no English uh, classes, no extra classes for the student. Today, I mean, the, the city is filled, every city is filled with some such e- extra classes, extra places that you can go and learn any language you wish or any, any discipline you, you like. At the time, there was not. And our source was uh, our old friends who were at the high school and now they were a student in Tehran. And the, the famous uh, Russian publisher, Mir, was alive at the time. Mm. Uh, the books were very cheap. And we asked them to buy these books for us and bring to Koshan. And so we went through the problems and I mean, tried to, to solve. Some of them were very difficult, they couldn't do but some were made easy for high school students. This was our fun at the time. There was no cell, no computer, no nothing at all. Even TV was at a very simple stage. I mean, uh, two or three channels, not more than that. So uh, one of the funds that we had was with the books from the Mir publication house. I believe Mir doesn't exist anymore, uh, but at the time it was a good source of life for us. You, you, I mean, you said earlier you were studying engineering and electronics in Iran. Is it a natural step to get into mathematics? Is that a normal gateway to mathematics? No, it is not. As uh, I mentioned, parents want to have uh, either engineers or doctors as the, uh, for the profession of their kids. So uh, when I went to uh, mathematics and physics branch of high school, so I was naturally excluded from being persuaded as, as, a, as a medical doctor. So they wanted me to be an engineer, nothing less than that. <laughs> so, uh, so I went and uh, when I did the, the concours, which is, was very frightening at the time, and a few million students participated each year. Yes. Uh, um, when I had a rank, it wasn't the best rank. I, my, my rank was 14. So uh, 
uh, and I asked my friend, without absolutely knowing what electronic means, I asked my my friends, I mean, what should I do? I said, go to electronics. I mean, students who get good ranks, they go to electronics. So I, I, I mark electronic, and then that was my first choice, and I was accepted without even knowing. I mean, I frankly say that I didn't know what electronic means. But when I entered that territory, it was very interesting territory. I mean, I realized that it's I can uh, call electronics applied mathematics. The first two years we had basic courses, but when we entered the specialized courses, there were, there were a lot of mathematics inside, and I wanted to understand why antennas work, why electromagnetism work. Mm. And for that, I told myself, I go to the Faculty of Science, I do some more math, and then I come back, which I really did. I went to the Faculty of Science, and I got my master's degree. Then uh, even I registered for a PhD there, then I resigned and went and did my, my military service. Mm. And uh, after military service, uh, pretty much at the end, uh, I got admission from McGill University from two places, from Department of Math and also from Department of Electrical Engineering in the section of control theory. So uh, when I came to Canada, I, I, I went and saw my, my supervisor, Professor Zames, in the control theory department. And he told me that, look, you need to study math a lot. He said, I already have a master's degree. I said, no, that's not enough. You need to know about Hardy spaces, which is the basis of my new invention. He invented a theory which is called H-infinity control theory. I, and said to understand Sorry, but what's it called? Say it again, a little slower. H-infinity control theory is, okay. a, is, is a huge subject now. And he told me, if you want to understand my new theory, you need to go to the Department of Math and study these H spaces or hard spaces and then come back. And said, okay, that's good. I even have it admission from, from math department. I went to math department and started to take some courses. The first year passed, but unfortunately in the summer, he passed away. Oh. And I had to stay in math department which, I mean, still I do the same thing. Still I, I follow Hardy spaces and function spaces, but from abstract point of view, uh, not from application point of view. Okay, sorry, sorry. Let me take a couple of steps back here. I think you said I did okay. I did pretty good at the concours. I came in 14th. <laughs> yes. you, you mean 14th in the country, right? That, that's, yes. that's a little better than pretty good, isn't it? Well, then, well, there are very intelligent guys with I mean, rank one, two, three. I wasn't one of them. Okay, so, uh, well, I, uh, so top twenty doesn't doesn't count as. I mean, well, uh, this is quite remarkable. But yeah. uh, okay, um, well, maybe the only thing I can be kind of proud of, proud of it is that at the time in in my hometown, Kashan, as I said, we really didn't have any classes, extra classes. We we work ourselves. And, uh, for example, my English was, I mean, I, I shouldn't even say poor. It was really nothing. <laughs> I tell you a, a story about that period. Okay. Our, our, our English teacher in high school told us it's better to listen to foreign radios, and that helps you to understand better and improve your English. Uh -huh. And one day I was home in my grandparents' home. I was listening to, to a channel. I didn't know which channel was. And my uncle came. 
ask, what are you doing? He said, yeah, I'm listening to, to this because our uh, professor at, at the high school said that if you listen, your English will be improved. And I said, oh, yeah, he, he said it right, but you're listening to a French channel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you at least you learned French. <laughs> yes. Well, without knowing, I was practicing French at the time. But I didn't know that uh, 20 years after, my fate is to live in a French city. Right, right, now, right. It's already 25 years. It came in handy. Like, right, right, yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> Like, let me ask you something. I mean, again, these may seem like naive questions, but because we hear um, that educational standards, or at least the focus in areas like science and math and engineering is so strong in Iran that we presume that the edu educational standards are, are, are particularly high, why, why come to the West to do a PhD? Like, why not just do it in Iran? Uh, it depends on the discipline. Uh, in, uh, it is true that in mathematics, you can stay in your office and do uh, research, even profound uh, research, if you stay inside Iran. The, uh, I have some reservation for that, come to this uh, afterwards. But when it comes to engineering and even medical school, uh, you need labs, you need instruments. And that is why you have, you have to go get out of the country and and do uh, work in labs outside the country okay. because it, these labs doesn't exist got it that's one thing which is very important and the other thing even even for math it is not true that you stay in your office alone you have to talk to people and uh, you need a specialist so when you come to a department like uh, department of math in toronto university there are 100 professors i mean about a few hundred graduate student postdocs. There are many, many people that you can sit and talk to them and discuss with them. The discussion is important. Somebody that you can talk about the subject. That is why they come out to find a specialist to talk with them and to to enhance their knowledge of of the subject. Okay, so uh, you, you are the president of the of you know the Canadian Mathematics Society. Uh, you're you're a member of that Mathematical Council of the Americas. You're you have a sense of global um, achievement in, in in these areas. I want to ask you a question that uh, I mean, you know, zoom out from a technical point of view, and I don't even know if you can answer this question empirically, but I'm curious about it because. Um, one of the things that we like to say about ourselves as Iranians, uh, of course, I don't include myself in this because I'm, I, you know, I, I gravitated towards the arts and uh, social sciences, but, but that Iranians are disproportionately good at science and math. You hear this from Iranians, you know, we're, we're better with the best, you know, is that a myth? Uh, that we can just add to the, the things, the, the list of things we like to pride ourselves in, or is there something to that? Well, uh, yes and no. I agree that the Iranian students are good. I agree that there are a lot of intelligent people over there, and when they come outside, you see the outcome, you see the product, many good fools here. But still, being proud is good, but we need to be careful about that. And this has affected the behavior of students. And I have observed that this behavior has become uh, more and more sensible in the past, say, 10 years. And I have some comments about it. I don't know if it's a relevant place to talk about this here with Eugene or not. 
Well, I uh, let me get to that, but I, just on the face of it, you're saying that. Um, I mean, is it if you? I guess you can't answer as a yes or no. But um, if you were to judge Iranians or people of Iranian descent versus people from other places in the world, is it true that this is something that we excel in? I mean, I, I would, I'm not somebody who would believe that, that that would necessarily be in one's DNA, but but mm-hmm. because of the interest of that we're we're sort of streamed into as Iranians, is this something that you see? Disproportionately, Iranians uh, finding success at. Uh, my answer is yes, but don't beat the drum high. Okay. If uh, and my reservation is, is precisely over here. If you go to any country, they have good uh, scientists, good students. Uh, the reason that uh, the number of students in Iran, which are very good and excellent in some areas, yes, that's true, we can go to the root of this, but uh, promote it to an extent that causes some difficulties, I have some concerns about that. Okay, well this is, so let's start to get into that. I mean, you you have been teaching as a professor of mathematics for over 30 years in both Iran and Canada. What What is different in the perspective of the Iranian mindset and the Canadian mindset or the Western mindset towards sciences, if there is a difference? Not a huge difference, but I found that uh, Iranian students uh, uh, inside Iran, I mean, I, I teach at Tehran University, Amir University, University of Kashan, they have more tendency toward basic sciences. They like really physics, chemistry, mathematics, basic sciences. I mean, the, the origin of sciences, not application. Uh, of course, we have uh, excellent uh, engineers, I mean, uh, others who go to the application of science, but there is more tendency toward basic sciences. On the contrary, here in in US, in Canada, in the West, uh, there are less uh, tendency toward basic sciences and people go to the applications. That, that This is the main difference I see. Go to the applications, what does that mean? For example, um, as I said, engineering, I consider it as an application of basic sciences. I see, right. So, I mean, one barrier for new Iranian students coming from Iran that I know you mentioned to, uh, to, to one of my team members prior to this interview arises when they overestimate themselves and kind of rush to achieve success. And I think for a lot of people listening uh, in the Iranian diaspora or maybe even back in Iran uh, around the world, um, hearing that, they know exactly what we mean by that. But, uh, but this notion of overestimating themselves, rushing to achieve success, tell me about that. This is precisely related to your, to your previous question, and that is why I said I have some concerns about it. And I have been myself in this pitfall. Yeah, true, we, there are good scientists over there, but you have to understand our, our, our level, our, you know, en français, notre niveau. I mean, in this level, we, have, we shouldn't say in any place that we are good, we are great. And if, for example, we don't get a scholarship, try to complain and go and see graduate chairman. And uh, I have seen this phenomenon here in my department and in other places that somebody doesn't get the scholarship and uh, try to, to complain and say, well, we are excellent, my, my grades are, are good, and why I didn't get it. Sometimes they succeed, uh, they, uh, the committee revise and they give them the, the scholarship, but they don't uh, realize because they don't see the, the, big, the big picture what they lose 
And what they lose is the confidence and prestige that the, the, the authors, the member of the committee, considered for, for, the, for the, that individual, uh-huh. and it disappears. And uh, this brings me to my own story. Uh, I had a uh, certain difficulty in, I mean, on aspects of my academic life back to about 10 years ago. And with the same uh, uh, interpretation, I said, I mean, I deserve this, why I didn't get this, and I was unhappy. And the good thing is that I have some friends here in Quebec City. Uh, one of them is a, a surgeon, a car, uh, a cardiologist, uh, who works at one of the hospitals here, a very, very uh, intelligent man. And the other is a, a specialist of metallurgy, also a professor of mathematics. All three of us, from time to time, we gather together, go to coffee shops. But unfortunately, in this COVID-19 era, we cannot do that anymore, but we used right. to do that. And in one of the these nightly chats, I mean, I told them my story, that I'm not happy, this is the, the problem I'm facing with, and what do you suggest? And this is what we usually do with other problems of our life too, we try to help each other. And they gave me a very excellent advice, which is still with me, helped me a lot, and probably even helped me to to get into this position, as you mentioned, the president of Canadian Math Society. And the advice was, l'excellence est imbattable. I mean, right in the wall of your office, I mean, hang it over there, l'excellence est imbattable. Nothing can beat the excellency. If you work hard, if uh, you pursue research, your studies, and keep your head down, eventually you will get whatever you deserve. You, sh- you should not go and seek the outcome. You should just work mm-hmm. and be more and more excellent, then the result will come. It's a very profound advice, and I thank them. It helped me a lot. And as a present to my Iranian fellow, I would like to tell them, L'excellence and Batap. Just work, just keep your head down and work. Do not complain. Work, work, work. The result will come. You will be happy at the end. That's right. It's, a, it's so interesting. Uh, uh, mm. It was a couple months ago that we had Fidus Naderi on the show. And at one point, uh, when I was speaking of his achievements or calling him an icon or something, he said, you know, hang on a second. I'm really not that great. I've just worked really hard at this. <laughs> you know, uh, And it reminds me of what you're saying here now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please let me add that the friend I mentioned, that he is a cardiologist. Well, somebody might think that Okay, he's a doctor. He I mean, studied a few years in the university, and then now he has a good salary. No, that's not the case. Before coming to, to, to the West, to, to, to France indeed, he was a specialist surgeon in Iran. This by itself means he has studied a lot to become a surgeon in Iran, general surgeon. Then seven years he was at the university in Paris to study heart, wow. cardiologist. So add to that seven more years. Then he came to Canada, add two more years at McGill University <laughs> to become acceptable for the Canadian medical system. So it's a lot of work. I mean, to, to become a cardiologist in the, in the province of Quebec. He once, he told me that he was at the University of Studies for 20 years. Wow. 
But Jabot, I, I, I know you're not a psychologist, but I mean, if you were to take a guess at why this is the case with uh, people of Iranian descent, I mean, you grew up there, you studied there, you teach there, you've also studied here, you teach here. Uh, why is there this um, rush to try and achieve success? And the flip side of that, this feeling of inadequacy, that if there's a rejection of a scholarship, uh, somebody must have made a mistake, and I need to be getting that, and there must be something I have to complain about. I think this comes from, from above. You look at your models. Uh, politicians are very important. They can fit such behaviors into the society, and they have been injustices over there, and that's why when they see something like this, they become uh, overreacting. Uh, ha having good examples, having role models is very important in the life. If you allow me, I mentioned one of them, which is, I mean, has played a, a very important role in my academic life. Sure. Uh, his name is Paul Cousis. He lives in Montreal. He is 92 years old. Uh, retired if, uh, just two years ago. So this means that he even I mean, uh, taught at the university even at the, at the age of 90. And he still he goes to his office early in the morning, stay there up to the afternoon and come back. So he works hard even at the age of 92. He is working on a problem now. And the problem started in 2001, 2002, around that era. So about 18 or 19 years, he is constantly wow. working on the same problem. Wow. You see the persistency. Having this role model help us to, to do the same. And uh, I, I talked to him a couple of months ago just to say, hello, how are you doing, Paul? And then I asked about the research. He said that I believe I have some results now. And at the end of this story, I have written a paper. And I immediately say that, oh, I will, I will be very happy to publish your paper because I'm editor-in-chief. He said that, okay, but maybe it's about 200 pages now. So when you look at these people and he, he, this guy becomes your role model, then you do not complain. You right. keep your head down and you work. It sounds like part of what you're saying is in maths and sciences, like in the rest of life, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Absolutely. And on the contrary, if you are in a place that you see that somebody out of nowhere get promoted, goes to higher uh, hierarchy of an administrative society without having a liability for that, then you, you overreact. And then you see uh, an injustice, uh, something that you think is injustice, you, you, you show reaction. So it's a, in a sense, it's, it's normal, the reaction we see. But the good thing is that over the year, uh, it becomes less and less and it gets modified. That's the good part of it. This is a very some very rich conversation. I appreciate this. I want to ask you some qu questions about math in general, and I want you to almost respond like you're responding to a child, <laughs> because because I I, I the, again I, I want to try and get my head around some of this. But uh, let me start with that with the nature of what I just said and the tone with which I said it to you. Uh, 
there does seem to be a real math phobia that is quite prevalent for many of us. At least it was true for me in high school. And, you know, I found university quite liberating because I no longer had to study in the sciences and, and, and maths, and I could go into areas like history and political science and geography, etc. Uh, what can you do as mathematicians to fix math phobia? Uh, and I think this is mainly due to math teachers. You, can, you must teach math if you understand math. I've worked with some math teachers here in our department because we have a program which is called BOS, Baccalaureate pour l'enseignement secondaire, which means that we, we train high school teachers. I work with them and uh, I'm not happy with all of them but uh, pretty much all of them become high school students and imagine when they go to high school they teach math they might teach it in a way that the students uh, are not happy and this uh, i have witnessed for that because my kids i mean are at high school or just finished high school and when they have difficulties they come and we discuss together and I realized that it's not the kid or other kids which have the problem, it's the explanation. Mm. So it is very important that the math teachers understand what he talks about, and then he can uh, provide good justification, good explanation, and the kids will be attracted to it. Otherwise, the phobia you mentioned will arise and will be the dominant. I totally appreciate that, and I and I think that's absolutely true, and not just true for math, by the way. I think, uh, you know, we, we, that that comes uh, when in, in visual arts as well, that can be quite intimidating, depending on the way they're presented and packaged. You know, on on, on uh, there's there's ways to bring people into this. Um, how can again, if you'll excuse the macro nature of these questions, how can math? contribute in a broad way to every person's life? I mean, whether that person actually becomes a mathematician or not. Well, this question equally applies to even to other basic sciences uh, like physics, chemistry, even computer science. Uh, and to, to provide enough justification for you, well, we are talking together, but what are we using? There is a computer in front of us, communication line, and a signal is coming from you toward me or from, from, from uh, you, I mean, it, it goes back and forth between us, the signal, and how it works. The whole signal theory is something which is studied by Fourier, a French mathematician, and uh, it, it's what precisely what I'm working on, signal analysis. So it's hidden, it's in the background, you don't see it, but without that, nothing works. And if you, if you like another example, go to any hospital you wish, look at the instruments over there. It is true that the engineers built those instruments, but who programmed them? And what is the structure of this programming? That's another example. Interesting. So physics, math, uh, computer science, programming, all of this exists in our life, in our, I mean, regular life without noticing that. Just think about the I mean, cellular that is in our hand. How much mathematics is in it? How much physics is in it? A lot, a lot, a lot, without being noticed. Well, that may, I mean, uh, let me dig a little deeper. Where would you say 
the intersection is, if there is one, between math and human emotions and desires? I mean, is there a connection, say, when it comes to things like beauty, philosophy, or even justice and truth? Well, yeah, the, I mean, I believe the mathematician and, and the poets drink from the same fountain. Uh, when you prove a new mathematical theorem, it is beautiful, the same as a, as a beautiful poem. But to understand its beauty, it depends how much you like the mathematics. The same is true for a poem. If you show a poem to different people, they have different reaction. It is true that majority of people like it because they have better no knowledge of literature. But when you show a, a theorem to, to mathematician, I have seen this face many, many times that they smile, they, they have, I mean, they're very cheerful, happy in heart and said, oh, this is absolutely beautiful. Why do they say that? When you look at uh, the, the page, it's just theorem point and then some formulas. Why somebody says it is absolutely beautiful? Because it understands. They understand what is inside. Hmm. And yes, math is beautiful, physics is beautiful, chemistry, basic sciences. If you see the beauty, you need an, an eye to understand this beauty. And it, it, it equally works for literature. Do you think everybody who reads, uh, for example, I, I'm a, a fan of Rumi, somebody who, who reads Rumi, people have different reaction. The, the right. appreciation is not the same. It depends how much they realize what Rumi said. And equally works for my books or other books in mathematics. So, but at the end, when we go back to our soul, it originates from the same place. It originates from the same uh, point in our spirit. Right, but wouldn't, we, wouldn't the argument be that something like Rumi or uh, poetry is open to interpretation, but that maths and sciences deal um, in, in determinative, like in, in stats, facts that, that, that are not open to interpretation? Absolutely. That, that's the, one of the differences within them. In math, there is a fact point. I mean, you cannot interpret that fact. And that, that's another side of the beauty of mathematics. Uh, on the other hand, in literature, yeah, you have, there are different interpretations, but with different interpretation, we have different sides of beauty too. So it's not something bad. You think it's beautiful that there's only one answer in math? It is, it is. <laughs> Why? Well, as I said, you, you need to understand, you, you need a new eye <laughs> to see the beauty, to appreciate the beauty. Is it because you see um, an answer and you you know the work that's gone into achieving that? Is that what you... Absolutely. Is that? Uh -huh. And also the structure behind it. In mathematics, structures are very important. We go uh, to see what is beyond the walls, which are called the structure. Just, I mean, a very naive example to to show what a structure and uh, uh, harmony means in mathematics. If you have a, a table and say a set of four, four chairs in blue and another set with four chairs in red, mm -hmm. from mathematical point of view, they have the same structure. A structure of table, four chairs. Right. This is easy to distinguish. Right. And there are profound structure in nature that you see it 
but you are not able to distinguish it. Going forward for those structure is one of the beauties of mathematics. And then somebody, a great mathematician, discovers one of them and show it to the others. They, 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 they tell the other mathematician, look, this is the structure I, I found. And they see this structure and why they, they, they think it's beautiful and they are happy in their heart because they have the eye, the eye which distinguishes that, that, is, that is structure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny that you should uh, go go into these kind of descriptors. Maybe I've led you there, but one one of my final questions for you was is going to be: in what ways you feel being a mathematician has changed the way you see things? If you can put that in words, uh, it has uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad effect. The good effect uh, is that uh, I mean. There is no interpretation. Even in daily life, when I, I face a problem, I want a solution and uh, just a solution. I go for that until I take it. The perseverance that Matt gives me to, to pursue the solution uh, for ordinary problems in life, that's the good part of it. Uh, the kind of bad feature which needs modification is that uh, social problems are not like math problems. There are not zero one answer. Right. The, the answer is not yes or no. Something. Sometimes you have to go in between, and this is something I have practiced to learn over over the time. So it's different from the math story. I, uh, when there is a social problem, perseverance, which comes from math attitude, is good. But on the other hand, you should keep in your mind that sometimes you don't get the yes or no answer. Sometimes you have to go in between. That's the adaptation. Uh, it is such a great pleasure speaking to you. I, uh, we we really are proud of you in the diaspora. Have you have you felt the love of the diaspora since you became the president of the Canadian Mathematical Society, or, or even so? I mean, are, are folks aware of this back in Iran? I think they are, and, and thank you, Jian. There was kind of a, a explosion of news when this happened. I wasn't expecting that, <laughs> but I mean from friends and from others from colleagues at that at iran i mean the news was was spread over there it's it's an old news now but at the time it was kind of explosion for a couple of weeks java what do you think you told you told the story of when you first arrived in canada and there was the professor who told you to get you know work hard and get into mathematics and unfortunately that professor died um what, what do you think he would say about your success today well, Professor Zames was in the electrical engineering school, and I ended up to have a mathematician. But I believe we still we could have worked together to enhance his theory and to, 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 to promote what he found. I believe uh, Professor Zames would have been happy to see what I've done over the years in this uh, class of Hardy spaces and other functional spaces. Thank you so much for this today. Um, congratulations on your latest distinction. We'll be continuing to follow you, and I hope uh, post-COVID we get to see you in person. My pleasure, Jan, and thank you and your colleagues. Khodafis. Khodafis. That's Dr. Javad Mashriqi. He is the first Iranian to lead the Canadian Mathematics Society. He is a professor of mathematics at Laval University, Quebec, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mathematical Bulletin, Javad Meshtari joined us from Quebec City today.
utter pleasure that was. I gotta, uh, I'm back here, Captain Reza, uh, Groovy Shy, turn your mics on. I, I, I've gotta, I've gotta say, I've gotta confess, I suppose, that um, g- given my own deficiencies, I thought talking to a mathematician for uh, almost an hour would be um, would be challenging somehow. Either I wouldn't understand him, or we would. I mean, I thought I expected it was going to be a good conversation. I know he's a he's a great guy, and a good speaker, but um, I found that fascinating. Um, yes, I'm I, I'm I'm surprised by uh, Mr. Mashrigi and. Uh, I love mathematics generally. I love mathematics, and um, I I love the. Do you w- really though? Yes. You yes. do. Yes. Yes. Interesting. I, and and I can I can um, connect with that uh, se- when uh, he said that it mathematics is like an art, you know, and y- y- it's like pa- it's like painting. Y- it's when when you see a. Mathematic uh, sentence, you maybe you might say, "Wow, it's beautiful," and mm. yeah, I re- really enjoyed it. That would be the part we would expect you to connect to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Yes. Uh, but that, and you're absolutely right. And uh, Captain Reza, your I thoughts? I hate math, and I can't believe this guy. W- <laughs> I was able to sit here and listen to him for an hour and still be like fascinated. Yeah. I seriously, and and that's testament to, I suppose, what he said that. It's all about the teacher, not necessarily the the subject matter itself. If if the teacher knows the subject well enough and is and knows how to teach it well, then make you fall in love with it. There was so much. I mean, the commitment to excellence, the mm-hmm. idea of you got to just keep and that the idea of working towards something like how he loves mathematics because it's about problem solving over a period of time. There's there's so much there. I have to re-listen to the interview. That was great. <laughs> that we just I, I already want to hear the interview yeah. we just did. Yeah. But it was uh, there's so much there. But that there. was great it's advice though for us in the I mean not, it doesn't apply for people in Iran because they face a different totally different limitation and hardship and restriction and stuff like that. But for generally like people especially in the diaspora Keep your head down, work hard, and you'll get there. Well, that notion of Iranians wanting that accelerated, uh, you know, wanting to already be there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. consider themselves successful, whatever, without necessarily having done all the work, that that was very interesting. And I think it's something we can all relate to. Perhaps you'll start doing some math now, Captain Reza. I have already started. I started with putting my Some times tables in front of you? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, we're going to get to Nima Kion. Speaking of interesting folks in the diaspora in a few moments, he's a ballet dancer, a choreographer, a visual artist, a dance scholar who's made it his mission to continue the tradition of Persian ballet. And in fact, the National Ballet Company itself, whilst in exile, he can't do this in Iran. So he's doing it in Stockholm. We're going to go to Sweden for him in just a few moments. But first, uh, we have some important business. You know, each week, she enriches our lives by teaching us language that we did not know, at least some of us did not know. And she completes us in our mission to be perfect English and Persian blended specimens. She is the person behind the popular English Farsi Instagram page. But, But as importantly, She is the Persian priestess of Proverbs, the Australian sage of sayings, the wondrous woman of words. She is Mona from Melbourne, our resident Rook wordsmith. And she joins us right now from Melbourne, which may seem obvious given (laughs) that she's Mona from Melbourne. Hello, Mona. Hello, what an introduction. (laughs) How is life down under? Oh, it is fabulous. We are, like I said, out of lockdown and, 
yeah, I can't be happier. My mom actually managed to fly in. We're allowed to fly now. So my modar John is reunited. She came in last night. From where? We hadn't seen each. From Perth, Western Australia. So oh, she's in Australia too. Okay. Yes. So we're allowed to travel domestically now, and um, I hadn't seen her in ten months. So it's a oh, sweet reunion. That's <laughs> and, and she, she's Persian, right? She's Iranian. Yes, she's but, full Iranian. Yes. But she, but she, she, but you were born in Taiwan. Correct. She's I'm, actually fluent in Mandarin too. <laughs> oh wow! I've never asked you the story of this. So, so did your parents moved from Iran to Taiwan, or how did how did Taiwan happen? Um, well, they um, emigrated there. I think my uncle. No, actually, they were the first to immigrate there. They were looking at places to go prior to the revolution um, because they're Baha'is, actually, um, and they um, were looking at places to um, go before they didn't know that all of this was going to happen. Um, and they left Iran. I think the day before um, everything went down, and they didn't realize that they weren't able to go back. So right. they chose Taiwan as a as a place to reside and that's sort of how it evolved and yeah and then they moved to australia <laughs> and how old were you when you moved to australia with them um i was seven when we moved so i did kindy and grade one in taiwan um so english is actually my third language wow and so did you when you were a kid in taiwan i mean obviously you 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 don't look taiwanese necessarily so what, <laughs> at what age did you realize you were iranian or did you always you know sort of self-identify as iranian first um, I believe it was mostly when I was in Australia. I think in Taiwan I had no concept, but a lot of people were fascinated by us and our noses. And I know that my kindy teacher was fascinated by our family and would give us lots of toys. Like I still have a doll from back in the day when my teacher gave it to me. I think because we were so different and they didn't have many foreign visitors in, in Taiwan back That's then. That's nice. So. They yeah, gave, they gave so, you toys. Here they called us terrorists, and they were giving you toys. Yeah, I know. We had a pretty positive experience over there. But um, I guess it was in Australia that I really identified or realized that I had um, a different heritage. And, and um, what do your what are your what does your mom make of your Englishy Farsi Instagram page and your commitment to learning Farsi proverbs and teaching others? Oh, she's proud as punch. I mean, she could never imagine that the teenager that I was would <laughs> result in um, me going back to my roots because I really wasn't interested. I was, I believe you used the term a uh, closet ethnic. Um, mm. I believe I was something similar <laughs> right, right. Um, where I sort of denied my heritage quite um, vehemently. Um, so she's super, super excited that I'm doing this and passing it on to my children too. Well, uh, enough small talk. Let's get to the important <laughs> Well, the importance of this segment, which is what you are bestowing upon our imaginations today. Is it a word? Is it a saying? Is it a proverb? Take it away, Persian priestess of proverbs. Oh, gracias, gracias. Um, so today's, um, I'm going to start today's um, idiom. Today's an idiom. It's an idiom. Um, we're going oh. to, yes, indeed. Can you, can you remind um, us what an idiom is? Electronic so dance idiom, music? <laughs> What's that? Yes, that's right. That's right. It's electronic dance music, Shia. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fabulous. Um, it's actually a group of words um, established to have a meaning that's not actually deduced from the words that are used. So it has a secondary meaning. So um, we'll see what this secondary meaning okay. is shortly. Um, so I'll just go into a little bit of a, a story. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Persian poet, um, Sadi, of course, um, the the master of speech. Yes. Um, so he had an idiom that uh, was sort of evolved from him, and I just thought I'd 
give you a bit of a background and then we can go into the idiom itself. It won't take very long. You're not calling um, Sadie an idiom, are you? Sorry, <laughs> no. go, ahead. go ahead. Enough, oh, he enough puns. Heaven yeah. forbid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so uh, he was once crossing through a desert and was in desperate need of a rest. And he encounters some camel's footprints and decides to follow them because um, he's sure that a camel um, would find a good resting spot. So as he follows these footprints, he comes across a grassy area and notices that the grass on the left side has been eaten completely while the right side is completely untouched. Okay. So he reflects on this and he draws the conclusion that the camel must have been blind because um, in the right eye, because otherwise he wouldn't see the patch of grass on the right, which is quite an interesting deduction. And then he continues down that road and um, sees the imprint of a camel on the ground and the footprints of a woman. Um, and he infers that the camel must have rested here and that a woman was riding it. Um, and he also notices that there was some honey that was spilled on the ground. Do you know what honey is in Persian? Asal. Pop quiz. Asal, yes. Yeah. So there was some asal on the ground um, and the flies had corrected, uh, collected around it. Right. And he then concluded that the camel must be carrying honey. And then he looks up and sees a man in the distance walking towards him. And the man tells him that he's lost his camel and that he's see if he's ever seen him. Um, and then Sadi asks, was the camel blind in one eye? And the man responds, yes. And then he asks the question, was it accompanied by a woman? And he also says, yes. Was it carrying honey? He asks, and he says, yes. And then the man says, please tell me where this camel is. Um, and he replies, I haven't seen it. The man, <laughs> the man is now furious. Right, right. How can this man know all these details um, and not have seen the camel. So he starts to become violent towards Sadi. Oh. Um, and that's when the camel and the man's wife return. And the man apologizes to him and says it was his own fault for getting involved. So there's a famous Persian saying that um, has uh, this uh, meaning. Can, okay, hang have on. you come across something like this? Uh, I, uh, well, hang on. So the shotor. <laughs> Okay. Sh I'm with the, the camel is shotor, asal zan khanum, va shotor yek yek chesh. No, I don't know it. I don't know it. Bahu shotor. But I love the story so far. You've heard uh, it. You've heard yeah. it. I, I have heard it, You've huh? Heard it. So is 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 this a this is is this a do you know the stories uh, the story of Sadi Shaya? Yes, and I know. You know the idiom. Yes, yes. Do, do you, you know, know it, idiom? Captain Reza? I, I, I didn't know the story, but the idiom, I think I figured it out. All right, I think I Mo Mona, you tell us. Should should I get them to guess? Uh, sure, if they can okay. guess it, that'll be amazing. Reza, go ahead. Shotor didi nadidi, is that right? Yeah, correct. Oh, Absolutely. Shotor didi nadidi. Like this, you, yeah. you, you see... Uh, Have you seen or not in seen In English, we say, this never happened, and then with a little wink... This is a yes. similar situation where you've seen Indeed. something, but don't talk about it. Okay, then so you're going to get yourself in trouble. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, so it's oh. like turning a blind eye. Turning oh. Blind eye. Yeah. So how, how would I use that in a sentence, uh, Mona? Or do, do you? Well, I guess you wouldn't really use it in a sentence. It's more <laughs> like if you see something that happened, you just sort of like ignore it. Whereas, um, 
Like Maybe. I was going to say, you know what you can yeah. do? Like, for instance, if uh, Keon goes for a bathroom break, she leaves her coffee on the table. You can have a sip, look at us and say, Shotor didi na didi. But that's like, don't tell, right? Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. But what's the, I, I, sorry, I should have figured this out. But but are you saying that Sadie shouldn't have told the guy that he yeah. knew that there was a camel because the guy gets violent, that's right? right? Is that the idea? Yeah, he had no, he didn't have wisdom intact in how he said it. So if he was looking for something and he, he didn't actually know the history or the whereabouts <laughs> of the camel, <laughs> he needed to use his wisdom in how to express that. Well, the other thing I was thinking is the case of the missing chocolates last week. I don't know if anyone saw anything about ah, those missing chocolates. Sure. <laughs> but it's a case of yeah. I should just explain right. in in English that it means the camel. Did did, did you see or not see the camel? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, or you saw or you didn't see the camel? Uh, it would be the uh, would be the translation, which uh, <laughs> doesn't quite work. But uh, but it's kind of turning a blind eye. So Shia, I did not know this saying. I, I don't think I've I've known oh, this. Yeah. Oh, really? No, no. Oh. Is it very common? I mean, yes, everybody would know, yes, right? Yes. This is again. You see, Mona, this is perfect. You've you've uh, you've you found the line exactly between the diaspora and those who uh, have come from Iran <laughs> more recently. Because I'm yes. guessing Keon wouldn't know that either. Like uh, that's not. I've I've never heard that. But uh, yeah. but very interesting that it's as as common as it is. Shai, would you like to use in a sentence? Yes, actually, for example, uh, it happened before that we record something and uh, by mistake I deleted the recording and I <laughs> and I tell my colleague to shut her didi na didi. Good one. All right. <laughs> this is good. Thank you so much, Mona. So, uh, an idiom that uh, I will try to use throughout the week so that I can uh, I can get used to it. <laughs> Wonderful. And I look forward to listening to this um, interview with a Persian ballerina. I have a history of ballet and I would love to know what he's doing wow. with Persian ballet. Yes. he, he He's an interesting... I look forward to doing the interview. He's an interesting... He's a very interesting guy. He's... he. You know, he was kind of exiled from Iran at in his late teens, and then has built this ballet career in Europe outside of that, and then dedicated himself to building a national ballet that that has no chance of actually existing in Iran. So that he he has to do it in exile in in Sweden, mm. and unfortunately not even use uh, Persian ballet dancers, Iranian ballet dancers. But um, I'll ask him all about that. You yeah, are the wondrous woman wait. of words. Thank you so much, Mona. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Mamnoon. Khodafes. Khodafes. Shotor didi na didi. That's Mona Kiani. Mona from Melbourne. Find her page at Inglisi Farsi. Inglisi. E-N-G-L-I-S-I. Farsi. F-A-R-S-I. On Instagram. Well, the history of ballet in Iran started in 1928 when Madame Cornelie, a Russian immigrant who had fled the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, started giving dance lessons in Tehran. 
By 1978, the Iranian National Ballet Company had become one of the most recognized of all dance companies in the Middle East. Its repertoire included classical, neoclassical, and contemporary ballets. Prominent and world-famous ballet dancers and choreographers from ballet companies around the world were often invited to dance at Rudaki Hall in Tehran. That is until the Islamic Revolution of 1979, when most Iranian ballet dancers had to flee the country. But the story of the Iranian National Ballet Company has continued in recent years, albeit based in Sweden. Nima Kian is a ballet dancer, a choreographer, a visual artist, and a dance scholar who made it his mission to continue the tradition of Persian ballet and the National Ballet Company itself whilst in exile. Nima was born in Tehran, left Iran at the age of 17, moving to Turkey and then to Sweden, and despite being a multidisciplinary artist, Nima didn't actually begin his elementary ballet training until the age of 21 at the Gutenberg Ballet Academy in Sweden. After graduating there, he continued his dance education in France, and following a dance career in Europe, Nima Kion has been the principal choreographer of the Iranian National Ballet Company that that he refounded and has created a thematic repertoire based on Persian heritage ranging from classic ballets such as Shahzadeh and Seven Beauties to neoclassical works like Babek to contemporary productions such as Femme, The Hanging Gardens of Lost Dreams, and Symphony of Elegy in Green. Nima is one more vital person who is preserving and promoting Iranian culture, albeit from outside of Iran in this exilic era. Right now, the multi-talented Nima Kian joins me from Stockholm, Sweden today. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me in our program. It's a pleasure to have you on this program. I want to start with something relatively general, uh, a feeling. You are one of the many artists who fled Iran during the decades after the 79 revolution. Uh, in general terms, before we get into the specifics of your career and the, the National Ballet, how would you characterize what it's been like to be a dancer and a performance artist in exile or in Europe all these years? Well, uh, first of all, I'm, of course, glad that I have had the opportunity of realizing my dreams. But on the other hand, it has been a very difficult task to collect all the support that uh, has been needed. But... Uh, this is my uh, way of being. This is uh, something that I've myself chosen. No one has asked me to do this. So I'm glad, after all, that I've had the opportunity to realize a dream which seemed to be completely impossible. I'll get into the story of realizing your dream. Let's, let's, let's go back to when you were dreaming. Let's go back to you being a kid in the 1970s in Tehran. And... You studied painting and graphic arts at Tehran's exactly. School of Visual Arts. Do, do, do you come from a family of artists? No, I'm not coming from a family uh, who has practiced. What did art. your family make of this little boy who was so into being artistic? I'm glad to say that what they did was to support. Hmm. So they supported me all the way. Uh, from when I started to paint and making calligraphies, working with the graphics, 
until I started uh, in Sweden to dance and uh, started my education as a ballet dancer. When did you realize that you had a love for dancing and for ballet? I mean, I, in those years in Iran, I mean, perhaps even today, it's it's not common for Iranian boys to 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 go into the ballet, was it? No. Uh, well, I remember I was uh, perhaps eight, nine years old. And for the first time, I saw a ballet performance, which was broadcast on the Iranian national television. And if I'm not wrong, it was um, the performance, a ballet called Bijan and Manije, based on uh, one of Shahnameh's stories. Mm. And it was at that moment that I started to dream. And I could imagine that dancing is like entering another world. Mm-hmm. But uh, during the coming years, when I was uh, a student at the, the School of Fine Arts in, in Tehran, I didn't have an opportunity to uh, dance. What I did was to make a lot of paintings uh, with dance motifs. It's amazing. You, you exercised your love for dance by painting <laughs> about dance. Exactly. It's it's quite beautiful and a little little bit sad. I mean, as is the the story of of Iran at that time after the revolution. You end up leaving Iran at 17 years old but in 1987. Did you know that you were leaving and that did you have any sense that you're never going to return again? Yes, actually I had. Actually I had. Huh. I knew that uh, I'm going to be away from my native country during uh, quite a long time. And I didn't uh, buy a ticket to uh, travel from Iran to Turkey. I passed the border between uh, Iran and Turkey illegally and by foot. And uh, it took uh, several weeks. That's pretty heavy for a 17-year-old. It was very difficult to know that I'm not going to return at least for a long period of time. At the same time, I, I was um, happy that now I'm going to have the opportunity of real, realizing uh, my dreams. Now I have better uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have better uh, prospects for uh, doing what I want to do, uh, becoming an artist and, and uh, doing something about my passion. You end up in Sweden, as you say, at the age of 21, and that's when you take up ballet. And, uh, I mean, you've endured a lifetime of people pointing this out to you, I'm sure, but this is, it is quite extraordinary uh, to start dancing at the age of 21. Most people who thrive in the field of dance start much earlier. I think of people I've interviewed from the National Ballet of Canada who, you know, were in the ballet school by the time they were five or six years old. Exactly. How, How did you overcome the notion that this might be too late for you? How did you still throw yourself into that, which is laudable? Well, everyone, including the director of the Ballet Academy, uh, told me that this is too late. You're just too old to start dancing. But I convinced the lady. And uh, I just remember that uh, at the ceremony when education was uh, finished, she mentioned, I'm glad to, to, to say that I, I let Nima start dancing. 
he achieved his goals. What do you attribute that to? That were you a natural, or had you somehow, or did, were you working harder than others? Like what? What was it that it's led you? It's about to- how badly you want something. It's all about that. Ah. You spend most of the 1990s as a dancer across Europe. Then fate intervenes to lead you to this decision to seek the the refounding, the reestablishment of the Iranian National Ballet. Tell us what happened. Well, during the time I was um, dancing at the Gothenburg Opera, I got an injury. At the same time, uh, a kind of uh, new medical surgery uh, method of healing uh, was invented. And it worked on me. I got well. I could dance uh, a few uh, years more. Uh, during that time, uh, when I had my surgeries, I had um, the opportunity of reading a lot about uh, Iranian culture, learning about uh, our literature, uh, arts, and so on. So more and more, I can interested in, in uh, making this kind of mix of dance and um, music and so on. But why be so passionate about reestablishing the National Iranian Ballet Organization in Stockholm? I mean, it took you, it ends up taking you five years of unremitting effort to do this. Uh, you know, the establishment of this kind of organization obviously requires tremendous hard work, tremendous patience, you did this outside of Iran by the efforts and innovation of yourself alone. Why were you so passionate about reestablishing that company? Because I was amazed about uh, the history of ballet in Iran. I learned about the fact that Iran once had a great ballet company. And I started to research already at that time and find out that uh, actually Iran had the, the most famous and most uh, successful ballet company among all those uh, which existed, if they did, in the Middle East. So I was amazed uh, about the, the beauty of this art form which uh, people started to show on Iranian uh, stage at the Rudeke Hall. And thought that I should do this. You you talked a little bit about the history of of ballet. It makes sense for you to be talking about this because you're you're actually the author of a chapter called "The History of Ballet in Iran," which is part of a book called "Dance in Iran: Past and Present." And I was thinking about this, and I, I you'll have to forgive me if uh, this is a naive question. Or maybe this is born out no, of no, please go ahead me being a kid of the diaspora. But I but <laughs> what. What is Iranian dance? I mean, I other than you know the dancing we do at Mehmuniz, you know, there's that the the dancing to contemporary sort of Iranian pop music, and and I know the kind of folkloric, very traditional dancing they do in the outfits, uh, you know, at at sort of cultural events, but but I don't really know what Iranian dance is. Uh, well, uh, honestly, there are many people like you. Uh, dance uh, has not been a kind of art form which has been presented at least recently during uh, or after the Iranian revolution to other people. Uh, dance has a very, very long history in Iran. It started for almost 3,000 uh, years ago with Mithraism. 
and uh, it continued during the uh, Achaemenian uh, dynasty uh, and, and so on. And it has been existing even during the most difficult times of uh, our history. And it expressed itself differently and in many ways in, in our culture. One example is the, the Sufi dance, the dance of Sama, sure. which has been practiced for around 1,000 years. Only Sufi dance. But it will, well, I know it's Sufi dancing. Is but is that what we're talking about when we talk about Iranian dance? I mean, no. What, Ira- well, well, <laughs> what's it, our it, What's our equivalent a, to the can can or the or the twist? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's a long no. way back. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, dance is an art form which has been existing in all cultures, of course, in different ways. Yes. And there are so many different kind of, of uh, dances. There are like uh, folkloric dance, there are popular dance, there are disco dance, there are ballet, there are many, many dif- uh, different kinds of, of dance. Iranian dance is characterized by Iranian movements, by Iranian music. The picture of what we have of Iranian dance is more related to what is called Iranian classical dance, which is a kind of dance uh, which is inspired from uh, the Gajar period. Mm. So uh, it has been existing in different ways and shapes in our culture. So when uh, it's, it's uh, perhaps the term of Iranian dance is not very clear. It's pretty general. Because yeah. it's pretty general and there are so many different kinds of dance, even Iranian dances. So, uh, but ballet is something co- uh, completely new. As you mentioned, it came uh, to Iran in 1928 by Madame Corneli who started to uh, teach ballet to some kids. And uh, finally, in 1958, the Iranian National Ballet was founded by uh, the uh, Minister of Culture, the Iranian Minister of Culture. The company existed in 21 years until it was dissolved by the new regime. Nima, if one of your incentives when you reestablish the company by the by the early 2000s, well, by the time you really get it going, is to merge classical ballet, the kind of that you would have studied in France and in Sweden, with uh, Iranian cultural resources and Iranian themes. Is that what the Iranian National Ballet Company was doing in those 21 years in, 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 in the mid-20th century? Or were they pretty much reproducing, for the most part, classical ballet, Western ballet? Uh, well, actually, they were producing mostly Western classical ballet. Right. Until uh, the company grew up to uh, an organization that could quite well represent the Iranian culture, not at least abroad. Then people started to uh, think about creating ballets which were inspired by the Iranian themes, Iranian literature, and Iranian music, and so on. Of course, uh, there are some people like earlier, at the beginning of, or even before the uh, 
inauguration of the Iranian National Ballet, which tried to uh, create dances on the Iranian teams. But uh, they weren't very serious um, attempts, if I may say so. A professionally made uh, ballet production based on Iranian themes were first produced, uh, as I mentioned, uh, when uh, Bijan and Manija was uh, staged, staged in, in, in Tehran, Rudeke Hall. So that's probably mid-70s, right? Exactly. So it didn't have that much time to breathe and grow before it was shut down with the revolution. No. No, it didn't. And I know this is difficult to do this on an audio program. I mean, ideally, you'd be showing us, <laughs> we'd be in the room with you and you'd be, but, but can you describe what it is choreographically to merge Persian and Middle Eastern dance or moves with Western classical and contemporary ballet? Tell me about this mixture of ballet and Iranian dance and music. Well, uh, everything uh, starts with the music. Ah. It's when you listen to the music that you get inspired to create movements. So uh, you can say that music is the basic element of a choreography. Then, in terms of merging techniques, uh, there are some movements in Iranian dance that are characterized, that are characterizing the Iranian dance, Iranian classical dance. You just pick some of those and merge it with a classical ballet. Mm. Okay, this is just in terms of movements. Making a ballet is much more than the just the dancing. So let's go to a a real example. Tell me about Turquoise Land. Yes, and that's a ballet which is based on uh, Iranian classical music by Master uh, Meshkatian, late Master Meshkatian. And also the movements are uh, highly inspired by the Iranian classical dance. Uh, you could say that the upper body is moving like in Iranian classical dance and the lower body is, is doing ballet. Hmm. And you and you, you worked on that and premiered that in, in England, I think, yes? Exactly. It was in March uh, 2008. This might seem like a strange... All of these probably seem like strange questions, but, but I'm so curious. So did, is it... Uh, when we talk about Iranian dance or movement, is it challenging to teach a Western person or somebody who's grown up with the pedigree of a, of a Western ballet to move in, in, in an Iranian dance way? Of course, very much. I just remember when I uh, staged for the premiere, world premiere of Le, uh, Les Ballets Persons, uh, a work uh, called um, uh, Divine Banquet. I remember when I staged uh, a ballet called Divine Banquet for the integration of uh, Les Ballets Persons, that I had to not only explain to my dancers the way I wanted 
them to 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 move but also about what each movement means the technically the ballet is not very difficult but dancers should get into a particular mood a very special mood in order to be able to perform this ballet so I spend a lot of time to explain them about uh, the Sufism, about the philosophy uh, behind each movement, about the history of it, more than I was uh, working with them in terms of uh, movement and dance. Hmm. You know, uh, it occurs to me that creating something new and being a lone wolf out there doing this, uh, an Iranian national ballet company in Sweden, <laughs> no less, uh, is is probably a mixed blessing in the sense that um, you have the excitement of doing something uh, uh, rare and unique and important, but at the same time, you don't really have any competitors, uh, or you're you're not involved in a broader field which would um, create the conditions where you don't you probably don't receive as much criticism for your works. So you don't have uh, uh, critics who would normally be um, coming and and making comments about a, a traditional ballet. Uh, they don't have the pedigree or the the the, the lineage to sort of look at your works this way. Is it challenging to continue to improve without competitors or critics? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, you have, uh, or I have this kind of um, feeling of loneliness uh, because I think that things would be easier if some more of my com uh, compatriots uh, would be uh, involved. Right. in my art. Uh, we should not forget that uh, Le Ballet Persan during its, uh, until now, 18 years of existence, never uh, had any Iranian dancer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That's it, I find that kind of heartbreaking. Why, why is that, by the way? I mean, I understand. Well, actually, the, the, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense uh, in that term uh, in, in, in terms of, of the, there are no educated Iranian ballet dancers around. There are some, and uh, there are some uh, Iranian ballet dancers which have had their education in the West and uh, yes. have uh, grown up to successful dancers, but they are not dealing with the Iranian ballet. Oh. They are uh, attracted to uh, major national ballet companies, and uh, they are doing fine. And uh, what they are, what they do is to dance the the um, classical repertoire of ballet. They've never been involved in in any kind of Iranian dance, or I don't know. Perhaps they didn't uh, grow any interest in that kind of uh, art form. You haven't neither. been able to seduce them to Stockholm to to. To, to try working on this with you? Well, I haven't tried, to be honest with you. Every time we set up a production, we announce an audition. And the uh, dancers who are interested uh, have uh, the, the, the opportunity of applying. And we choose our dancers among the applicants. Unless we 
collaborate with other national ballet companies like in the Central Asia to set up uh, a dance performance. In that case, I choose my dancers among those professional dancers who are already engaged in these uh, major companies. You know, I'm curious what the interest level is and what you're doing uh, specifically, I mean, globally, but in our diaspora, in the Iranian community, after what you've said about uh, having trouble getting support. Ballet, even before the revolution, as you've mentioned, was it was an emerging art in Iran, maybe mostly for elite audiences, I would guess. Then it's been banned for over 40, 40 years. What is the size of your audience now? Well, I should say that uh, all my ballet activities are not limited to Le Ballet Persan. I also work as a ballet master and choreographer uh, with other companies. When it comes to uh, uh, Le Ballet Persan and the company which I'm directing, uh, well, the, the interest is uh, huge. There are other problems. Staging ballets with, that, with the kind of quality that I really want to have is difficult because of uh, financial matters. You know, it's very difficult to work with a kind of dance form which is dependent on the support and collaboration with so many other uh, artists. Yeah. But it also is usually dependent upon the support and collaboration of the state. I mean, that's, you know, m most national ballets, national theaters, uh, uh, art archives, uh, you know, these are these institutions and organizations are usually funded by the country in which they represent. I mean, that, that, that's the tradition. Uh, and so this whole, the whole thing to me is tragic uh, that I Iranian national ballet has to exist outside of Iran just to happen, uh, first of all. And then to hear that you are, I mean, you intimated, I, I haven't asked you the question directly, but it sounds like you don't get tons of support in terms of um, material uh, support, uh, donations or, or funding, et cetera, from the Iranian community around the world. Is that true? Yes, that's uh, completely true. That's completely true. That, that is tragic. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Ballet is a very beautiful form of arts. Those who... Uh, have the chance of getting to know to it, they really fall in love to it, and they realize uh, what uh, capacity the art form has to illustrate the culture and heritage of a country. And Nima, you've thought about this, obviously, much more than I, I have when I ask a question like this, but, but when you ban an art form, like ballet for 40 years. It's not just that people uh, can't see it or enjoy it or um, do it. It's that new generations of potential amazing ballet dancers cannot grow and flower and find their footing uh, because it's just too difficult. So this is not just cutting this art form out for the present. It's it's kneecapping or, or to use the physical uh, metaphor, it's, it's retarding the ability to even grow this art form for the future uh, in, when it comes to Iranian art and, and Persian dance, etc. Right? Yeah, exactly. And what I've uh, made as my own task is just to preserve what uh, which already exists in terms of ballet, 
and, and the repertoire that I've uh, created for Le Valet Persan and make it possible for future generations to continue with this art form and form it as a kind of Iranian form of art. We don't know what is going to happen in the future. Perhaps uh, there will be uh, an opportunity for all these young Iranian people who are both boys and girls who are uh, so interested in dancing and particularly in Iranian ballet to uh, be a part of, of a national company. You talked about it being lonely a few moments ago. Currently, I mean, you are the only person who is working on and for the art of Persian ballet in the world. Uh, what, what keeps you going? I mean, you've, you've had a good run. Why, why, why not just give up at this point? What keeps you? The driving? love of my country, of course. And uh, when I'm thinking what opportunities this country has had with this rich culture, and uh, I don't know how long it takes, but someday I think uh, I will be able to stage ballets in Iran mm. and could help and assist all these people, if not uh, on a daily basis, but each week, write to us, to our company, to me, ask for assistance, for guidance, and uh, they have requests. Uh, I can't help them. I'm, I'm very sorry that I do not have the ability of, of uh, uh, helping them in order to get along with their interest and passion and love for dance. But there will be a day when people will have, or these young people will have the opportunity of uh, practicing the art form that they love and they are so passionate about. I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. To, to end off, I, I know that coming up in about a year and a half is the 20th anniversary of reestablishing the Iranian National Ballet. Uh, and I know you want to do something special for the 20th anniversary. What, what do you want people to most know about uh, that? Well, that uh, ballet is a part of their heritage. It's a beautiful art form which should be supported. And all kind of support that they can offer in order uh, to make a great 20th anniversary of Le Ballet Person is mostly welcome. Nima Kian, I thank you so much for your time today. I thank you for the work that you do for, uh, for dance and for culture. And uh, I can only hope that I can come to Stockholm and see, see what you do in person before too long. Hopefully. Thank you very much. Merci, Thank you for having me in your uh, program. Thank you. Thanks. Nima Kion, the artistic director of the National Ballet Company in Stockholm, ballet dancer, choreographer, visual artist, dance scholar, who has made it his mission to continue the tradition of Persian ballet. He joined us from Stockholm, Sweden today. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com is the hub of all things Rook. This is the point where I have to thank the amazing team who put this show together. Each episode producer, Susan. 
Ponta the Artist, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Thoughtful Negin, Ahai Mertad, English Muhammad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there who are supporting us, sharing our content, subscribing, and joining us at our patrons page. It is so appreciated. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Talk to you on Thursday. Mizunbashin.